The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Hey, good morning, Crosspoint. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Happy that you guys are all here with us. We got a full house this morning. That's awesome. The weekend before Thanksgiving, that's super cool. Uh, if, you, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Justin. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, get the awesome privilege to, to lead our middle school and high school students. Um, before we jump in, I'd like to pray over our time together. So if you join me, please, thank you. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the sun peeking through the clouds. Thank you for bringing each person here this morning. Lord, whether they came here because they desired to, whether they were dragged here by a friend, you've brought each of us here for a reason. And so I'm asking that this morning would be devoted to you, that you would do whatever it is that you want to do in this place. You would remind us of what we need to be reminded of. Teach us what we need to be taught. And for the glory of your name, Jesus, amen. So I often, when I, when I read uh, my Bible, I often find myself reflecting uh, on some significant characters in those stories, um, but particularly their first words and their last words. Kind of when they come on the scene, what are those first things that they try and get across? And then before they either die or before their ministry is finished, what are those last things that they have to say for us? And you'll find some really fascinating things in there as, as you look at that. And so I started to think, well, what are some other famous words and things outside of the Bible that maybe some of us are familiar with? And so some of those famous last words that I, I looked into this week, Elvis Presley, before he passed away, his last words were, I hope I haven't bored you. Those his last words. And then Winston Churchill, quite the opposite, he said, I'm bored with it all before he passed away. I'm bored with it all. And then this one just made me chuckle. I'm going to really offend some of you guys with this, but Buddy Rich, he was an influential drummer, if you've heard of Buddy Rich. Uh, he passed away shortly after a surgery that he had, before, but before he went into that surgery, the nurse asked him, is there anything that you can't take? And he said, yeah, country music. <laughs> I just thought that was great because I hate country music, so I really hope that those are my last words before I die as well. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's going to offend some of you, you country fans out there. Uh, but then I'll, I'll never forget the, the last conversation that I had with my grandmother before uh, she passed away. She was diagnosed with acute leukemia, uh, passed away within about three weeks of, of that diagnosis. And so I'm sitting there by her bedside at her house, and it, we're having this really bittersweet conversation. And we're kind of weeping there. She gets to meet her great-grandkids before she passes away. And so it's this beautiful moment. And I'm weeping, and she's like, I know you're sad, but we'll see each other soon. It was kind of the last kind of parting uh, conversation that we had. I know you're sad, but we'll see each other soon. And there's these very, really significant things that stand out to us. People's first words, their last words, they hold so much power, so much, and they create so much impact for us. And so today, what Beth just read for you guys, we have probably the most famous word that has ever been spoken throughout history. So famous that it's tattooed on at least two people in this room. I guarantee you that right now. It's this word, tetelestai, meaning it is finished. What Jesus said there in his final breath on the cross. And many of you have probably heard this story. You've read it. Maybe you've skimmed through it. Maybe you've missed some of the significance that's here. Maybe you have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Like, what, what's finished? What, what does that mean? Is Jesus talking about his, his life? Is, is he about to die? His suffering? What's, what's finished? What is he 
trying to get across to us. It's a powerful statement, but what is he talking about? So what I'd like to do this morning is talk to you guys through this, this idea. What is this word to tell us that? What does it mean? Why did Jesus say it? Why is it so important? And then how we have a hard time accepting what happened there. But this, this first idea is what, what Jesus is really talking about uh, is this idea of sin. It's this ugly three-letter word that, they, that we don't like to talk about that much. We really don't like this idea of sin, at least telling people what sin is, because it's a, it's a difficult thing. We don't like telling people about their shortcomings. But this is what Jesus is saying. Sin is finished. I want to encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Beth's message a few weeks back, she talked all about sin. She talked all about what it is, why it's so disastrous and destructive, why it's so serious, why you and I should take sin very seriously, that God takes sin very seriously. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I'm not going to talk through much of that with you this morning, but I do want to recap a bit of it so that we're aware with what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And so what sin is, ultimately, is it's just rebellion against God. That's, that's what it is. It's rebelling against who God is, rebelling against what he says. When God says, do this, don't do this, it's us saying, yeah, no thanks, God. I'm going to do it my way. It's sin. Um, and what the Bible tells us about sin is that we all were born into rebellion against God. Whether you realize it or not, from the moment you entered this world, you were born into rebellion against him. It's your nature. It's your sinful nature. And what, what the Bible says about this sinful nature and what, what the, 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 the problem with that is that it causes us to be eternally separated from God. Think about that for a second. From the moment that you entered this world, you were eternally separated from God. And then what the Bible says, the payment for that sin, says the wages of sin is death eternally separated from God because of our sin. And the payment for that sin is death. It's an awful, terrible, horrible thing and a horrible, horrible position that we've found ourselves in. And then the next thing that I, I, I go to is, okay, well, what sin is Jesus talking about here? Because I think many of us have these ideas about sin, and we go to these immediate places. Like, okay, I know there's some things I probably shouldn't do. Murder's pretty bad. Uh, adultery's pretty bad. It's damaging. It's destructive. I probably shouldn't steal. Right? We know that there's some sins that are just not good for us. They're not good for people. Uh, what I want you to realize is it's not just the big sin. It's not just the gnarly stuff that has eternally separated you and I from God, it's actually, probably more often than not, the little things that we tend to not think about. The jealousy, the greed, the pride, the shame, all sorts of things in there that God says, you are eternally separated from me because of your sin. And then there's some of us in this room, I want to talk to you good kids for a second. Some of you that grew up and you didn't even dream about doing some of these things that you saw your friends do. You're like, dude, there's no way I'm sneaking out of the house, nothing. My wife snuck out of the house one time and she got busted for it. That's probably the worst thing that she ever did growing up. She was a good kid, but, we, but so some of us, we grow up like that. That wasn't me, by the way. But some of we, us have grown up and we wear this merit badge like a little boy scout that says, look at me. Look at how good I've been. Look at how awesome I am. And what, what the Bible has to say, or, or you think that way until you go back and read what Jesus had to say to a lot of these self-righteous religious teachers during his time. 
who often got a lot more critique and got in a lot more trouble than those people that were really broken and really hurting. Jesus had a lot to say about self-righteousness. The look at me, look at how good I've been. You've missed the whole point. And I'm going to unpack that with you guys today. But the, the, on your note sheet, you're going to find some, some fill-in-the-blanks if you like taking notes. You can write this down. This first point is that what sin is Jesus talking about here? It's, it's religion and rebellion alike. It's both of those things. It's your rebellion. It's the big sin. And then it's your religion. It's your self-righteousness. It's I've done all the right things. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. It's all of this sin and everything in between that has separated us from God. So you rebellious and religious people alike have been separated from God. And I want to highlight that self-righteousness again, just real quick before we move on. I heard another pastor say it this way, is that your self-righteousness, it looks really great, and it'll have you smiling all the way to hell. Your self-righteousness looks really great, and it'll have you smiling all the way to hell. There's so much that we need to be careful of. There's so much. And, and, and what, what, what Paul would actually say is you rebellious and you religious people alike, you're all in the same boat. Each one of us in this room, none of us are exempt from that, from that separation from God. He, Paul would say in the book of Romans, no one is good. No one has followed God. All have turned away. Each and every one of us are in the same boat. So there's some comfort in that. But also that's a hard thing for some of us to hear. But what about all that stuff that I've done? Hmm. We'll talk about that. And there's a phrase that we love around here at Crosspoint. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but God. So you religious, you rebellious people like eternally separated from God. But God, being so rich in mercy, gave you life through Christ. Some of you have heard about Jesus before. I guarantee you've at least heard the name. Um, most scholars nowadays wouldn't actually disagree that a man named Jesus lived, died a death on a cross, was a Jewish teacher. Most people wouldn't argue that, but I want to talk to you this morning about who God is and why Jesus came to do what he did on that cross. And so I want to talk to you for a minute here about God's plan, God's great plan. And so here's where we've found ourselves here in 2023, right? God loved the world so much, John 3:16. God loved the world so much that even though you and I were eternally separated from him, from the time that we were born into rebellion, he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to, die, to live a perfect death. Jesus, fully God, fully man, lives this perfect life, not a sin committed. And weirdly enough, dies a criminal's death on a cross, even though he did nothing wrong, nothing to deserve it that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And I think we've all heard at least that verse before. I think it's on the bottom of your In-N-Out cup if you go to In-N-Out, right? John 3.16. I don't know if you've thought much about this idea of Jesus on this cross. Again, you've probably heard it, but I want you to, to really realize how, how significant and how gruesome and how awful this would have been, right? And so I want to read something to you real quick, a, a brief description of what crucifixion was, right? And so this is how it says that death ultimately occurred, right? That the, man, the man would be stripped, stripped naked, right? Stripped from his clothes, hung up on a cross, either bound by ropes or with nails driven into the wrists. And they said with the nails driven into
into the wrist, it would actually feel like lightning was going through your fingers. Nailed through the wrist so that your fingers would just, you, it would just be so awful. Your fingers felt like lightning were going through them. Ankles bound or nailed. And then death ultimately occurred through a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the body strained under its own weight. You're trying to hang off of this cross and your body is, is, is down and you're having a hard time trying to breathe because you're trying to support your weight with either the rope or the nail that's driven through your feet. You're trying to support your body weight. And so this is where we find Jesus. Death could be hastened by shattering the legs which prevented the person from supporting their body's weight and made breathing even more difficult, accelerating asphyxiation and shock. They say that most crucifixions would take around three to four days for the person to die. This is awful. This is horrible. And then as if you and I thought that it probably couldn't get any worse, like this is up there with the, the, the most intense and awful forms of torture known to man, and as if it couldn't get any worse, God actually lays the sin of the world on his shoulders in that moment. And so the pain, and excruci the excruciating pain, and actually that word excruciating actually comes from crucifixion if you didn't know that. This excruciating pain, as if it couldn't get any worse, the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin from yesterday, today, and tomorrow had been laid on his shoulders. And he bore the wrath of God, paying the punishment for your and my sin. This was God's plan? Well, absolutely it was. And that's something else that we need to recognize. This was not some surprise to God. This was not some backup plan that God said, okay, I guess we're going to have to make this work because of what you did. No, 1 Peter chapter 1 actually says that Christ was chosen as a ransom for us long before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan in advance, that he knew that you and I couldn't do it. He knew that we would rebel, and he knew what he would have to do to make a way possible for us. And Jesus said in, the, in his final breath there, the word that changed the course of history to tell us die. It is finished. I want to talk to you for a moment now about this word. Why it's so important, why it's so significant. Don't miss this. This word to tell us die. So this was not unique to this story of Jesus here saying this in his final breath. This word was used uh, in a variety of ways. There's a multitude of, of ways that it was used. I want to talk to you about a couple. One of the first ones that I saw is it was an indication of a transfer of ownership, right? So if a, if a property owner had a deed and they were transferring that deed to another owner, they would write on that deed to tell us die. To indicate that the, that the transfer was finished. It was completed. There were no more contingencies. Nothing else that had to be done. It was complete. Another reason that this word was used is when a debt was fully paid off. So if someone had a debt that they had to work for or pay for, the owner would write to Telestai across that documentation to say, the debt has been fully paid. There's nothing else that has to be paid. I loved this one. Artists would use this. Uh, often when they would either complete a sculpture or, or a piece of work, they would say, Tetelestai, when it was done. And the idea was that nothing else should be added to it. It's perfect in the way that it was designed and created, just as it is. Tetelestai, it's finished. 
love some of those reasons. Encourage you to check out some more of those to get familiar with this word. But now I want to tell you why, why this word that Jesus used is so powerful in this moment, you guys. And a lot of this gets lost in translation because this is not an English word for us. This is actually a Greek word. In the tense that we have here, I'm not going to nerd out on you, I promise. But this is, it's called the pluperfect tense. Okay, the pluperfect tense of this word, tetelestai, what that indicates for us is that something happened at a specific point, but then it doesn't actually stop there. It's actually a continuous, ongoing thing that doesn't stop. It's, it, it, it continues from that moment onward. And so Jesus says, tetelestai in that moment. But what that meant, meant for then and onward and today. And so here's the picture that we get when we understand this. In that final breath, Jesus said, Tetelestai, meaning that your sin, my sin, has been fully paid off from yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and onward. And church, this is the good news about Jesus. This is what we call the gospel. This is the good news. I liked this quote that I heard about this word, tetelestai. It comes from Charles Simeon. You'll find this on the screen. He says, since the foundation of the world, there never was a single word uttered in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word, indeed, that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration. But tetelestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. We cannot understand the height or the depth or the length of this word. It is so much deeper than you and I could understand. It is so much more impactful and powerful than you and I could ever imagine, church. And that's good news. My sin's been paid to tell us die. But it doesn't end there, actually. You know, praise God to tell us die is your sins forgiven. But it's not just that. Praise God that that's true. But it actually means so much more than this, just that. So I don't want you walking out of this building today. And if somebody were to ask you, what did Jesus do for you in that final breath for you to just say, he forgave my sins? Because you've got half of, the, you've got half of what happened there, if that's the case. And you're missing so much more that he did for you. The second point there on your note sheet is this. You can write it down. It's what I've already said, that sin's debt has been paid and its power removed. Sin's debt has been paid and its power removed. I want to read some scripture here for you. It comes from Romans chapter 6. This is what Paul has to say for us here. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 6. He says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might what? Lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And that is the best news. Praise God that your sins have been forgiven. But then praise God even more that sin has lost its power in your life. And man, some of you desperately need to hear that today, church, because you feel like you are trapped and stuck in your sin. And yeah, you might know that God forgives you, but you don't feel like its power is gone because you're right there in it. 
What this means, church, is that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in this final word that he spoke. This means that when you call on the name of Jesus, your sins are not only forgiven, but sin has no hold over you anymore. And what I want you to get is that this is not just a conscious choice that you and I make to stop behaving in a certain way. It's not saying, okay, Jesus, you gave your life on the cross. Now I'm going to respond by being a better boy or a better girl. That's not what's happening here. It's so much more than that. It means that you can actually experience healing and restoration because of what Jesus did and through the power of God's Holy Spirit. That something actually changes when you believe in that sacrifice. When you actually call on the name of Jesus, something happens. Yesterday morning, a prime example of this. We had a gentleman here sharing his testimony with us. And he said, I grew up and I was so lost and broken. And I was chasing so many things to try and numb all of that pain that I was experiencing. Drugs, alcohol, women, you name it. And he goes to a youth group. And he gets saved that night. He'd been going to church his whole life, but he said, I finally got it. I finally recognized that I needed Jesus. And you know what he said? He woke up the next morning. He said, I didn't even have the desire to do those things anymore. He said, I, 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 I felt different. He said his mom looked at him that next morning and said, you're different. And he goes, Mom, I don't even want to do that stuff anymore. This is the power of Tetelestai, church. It means that your sin has been paid, but sin has no power over you. Amen. Praise God for that. You can talk to followers of Jesus here that were stuck in brokenness and addiction, and they didn't just choose to stop. They'll tell you, something happened. Jesus changed me. This is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. And it sounds so great. But just like with any sales pitch or, or good timeshare presentation that you sit through, what's the catch? Because there's got to be a catch, right? This sounds too good to be true. Like, doesn't it? Doesn't it just sound way too good to be true? Like, how is that possible? We tend to go to a, a couple of places when we consider this. What's the catch? This is too good to be true. We either say, if it's true, if this is really true, then I have to do something to get it. I have to do something. There has to be something that I have to do, some ritual that I have to complete, some word that I have to say to receive this. Or you might ask yourself, how could God do this? Because if you're telling me that he's as serious about sin as, as you've indicated, that like the wages of sin is death, then how could God do this? How could he be so flippant about forgiving me for my sins? So we either have to do something or this doesn't make any sense because how could God do this? And this good news is hard to believe for a multitude of reasons, church, and I want to spend some time to walk you through some of those difficulties that we have. Why to tell us that is so hard for us to, to grasp onto it's such a hard thing. It's so simple and so easy, but yet so difficult at the same time. So I want to talk to, you, to some of you seasoned Christians for a minute. Those of you that have been going to church for a long time, been at this for a while. Maybe you can relate with me here. Does this not get a little bit harder to believe the longer that you've been following Jesus? The longer that you've struggled with sin, we start to think that maybe there's an expiration date on that sacrifice. Like, man, that grace tasted so good when I was broken and desperate. 
And I believed fully at that point in my life that Jesus forgives me. But now I've been going to church for 20 years and I'm still struggling with some of that stuff. I wonder if God still forgives me. We start to think there might be an expiration date there. And I want to remind you, this is for all of us, not just the you, you who have been following Jesus for a long time. This is for you that are new to this thing, still have questions, not sure. I want to remind you of what Hebrews 10 has to say for us. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 11, will be up on the screen for you. The author's talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant. Before Jesus, after Jesus. The way things used to work, now the way things are. The old promise versus the new promise. So verse 11, it says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. I want to pause there for a second. Hebrews would also indicate to us that those sacrifices would actually remind the people of their sins over and over again. It would be this reminder of their guilt, this reminder of their sin. Verse 12, it continues, But our high priest, talking about Jesus offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for how long? How long? All time. How many sacrifices? One. One sacrifice good for all time. That's good news, Christian. Good for all time? Yes. That means as good now as it was back then. That means it's good for you today in the midst of your, your current struggles as it was then when you first discovered who Jesus was, that that sacrifice still counts. And again, it continues. It's not just good for a period of time. There is no expiration date. It continues onward. And so that's, that's, that's kind of the first reason why I feel like we struggle sometimes. Another reason is this. You need to recognize that you have somebody that's out to get you. We talk about this a lot. You have a great enemy. His name is Satan, and he wants nothing more than to prevent you from being with God. That's what he wants. He does not want you with God, and he will do everything that he can to make that happen. And he does this in a variety of ways. Uh, the Bible describes him as a deceiver, as an accuser, and what this means is that he twists, he lies, and he tries to convince you and I of things that are not true. So if you've ever had that little whisper in the back of your head, we were like, that sounds good, but, and it's right here, right? That's the enemy trying to convince you of things that are not true. And he will throw lies at you. He will twist things. He will stop at nothing to prevent you from experiencing God's love and his goodness. And if you've ever wondered how, it, how Satan does what he does, how he operates, I want to give you a, a, an example here. So that next point on your note sheet, uh, Satan's M.O., the way that he operates, some, a way that you can pinpoint the way that he tries to target you and attack you is this. You don't need God's grace or you can't have God's grace. He will either try to make you feel one of those two things at some point in your life. Maybe it swaps. Maybe you found yourself there a multitude of times. You either don't need God's grace or you can't have God's grace. Both of those are lies that you need to fight. He will either fill you with this pride that says, I've got this thing. I'm good. I don't need God's grace. Or he will crush you and pummel you into the ground to where you say, there is no way that God could love me. And notice it's that you can't have God's grace because I think a lot of us know that we don't deserve God's grace. That's very true. 
You don't deserve it. But the enemy takes it to a new level and says, yeah, but you can't have it. It's not for you. It's for everybody else around you, but not you. And how foolish is that for us to think of, church? Like, you think that you can out the blood of Christ that was spilled on the cross 2,000 years ago, so you're saying that it counts for your neighbor, it counts for that person, but not for you? You're telling me that it counts for Paul, who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament? 13 letters in here that we have from Paul, who was imprisoning and murdering Christians. You're telling me it counted for him, but not for you? Come on. I heard a pastor say, just get over yourself. That's not me. That was somebody else. So you have an enemy who's out to get you. And then a third reason is that our shame gets in the way. Shame, guilt, right? I'd say guilt is true and accurate. You are guilty. You were born into rebellion against God. You deserve the punishment for your sin. You do. But shame says, I can't have God's grace, right? It's easy to run to that place where your shame says, oh, I'm, so, I'm so terrible. Gosh, I'm so awful. How could I do that? I, 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 right? It's so, it's so self-centered and self-focused. You want to know why God hates shame? It's because of that very reason, because it's selfish. It's actually more prideful than you realize for you to be shamed, ashamed of yourself. Because guess where all the attention is? It's on you. You know what God wants more than anything? He wants you to take your attention off yourself and look at him. That's why he hates shame. I would argue that shame makes the blood of Jesus a wasted sacrifice for you. Your shame will get in the way from you actually being able to experience God's mercy because your attention is so here and you miss out on what he did for you. Um, the way that we think has to shift the Bible indicates that for us a lot. You have to change the way that we think. I'm going to offend some of you here for a second. And if I do, um, you can email Steve Redden at gotocrosspoint.com. <laughs> He'll be more than happy to talk to you about that. That's actually not even his real email. So if you try to email that, you're going to get a return to center error. I'm not going to give you his real email. So the next point on your note sheet, you can write this down. You're not that important. I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to tell them that. Do it. Seriously, do it. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not that important. You're not that important. And man, that's funny and comical, but some of you actually have a really hard time hearing that. But you need to get comfortable with that, church. Because it's true. We tend to make it so much about me. When in reality, it has nothing to do with you. What Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross has nothing to do with you. Don't even think for a second that it did. It has nothing to do with you. You are not that important. And until you come to terms with that, shame will prevent you from experiencing the fullness of God's mercy. And I don't want that for you. Because you're not that important, but guess what? You're so valuable. You're not that important. But at the same time, you are so valuable to God. And you have to come to terms with that. Like, he didn't die to spite you and I. He didn't hang up there on that cross and say, look what I had to do because of you. No, he didn't die for that reason, church. He died because 
He wants you. He died because he knew that there was no other way. He died because he knew you couldn't do it, and he said, I'm going to do it for you. Before Jesus was arrested and led to the cross, he finds himself in, in the garden, and he's praying. He's sweating blood, if you've heard that story. He's sweating. He's, in, he's under so much stress and turmoil that he's sweating blood from his pores, and he's praying to the Father. You know what he says in there about you? He says, Father, I want those whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Like, if that doesn't show you the heart of God for you, I don't know what else does. You're not that important, but man, you're so valuable to him. I heard someone talk about it this way. If you thought that the, that the pain and excru the excruciating pain that Jesus went through on the cross was painful, imagine how God felt knowing that he was separated from his children. That that pain was so much more unbearable for him. To know that we were separated from him. And so he made a way possible for us to be with him. He knew you couldn't do it, and so he did it for you. And another reason why he did this, again, it's not about you. Why? Because it's actually all about him. God loves his glory. Romans 11.36 would say that everything was created for God's glory. Everything in this world is a sign that was meant to point and direct your attention back to him. Off of yourself and off of the thing and all for his glory. Everything was created for his glory. What Jesus did on the cross, guess what? Was for you, but ultimately for the glory of God. So that other people would be able to see how good he is. Not how awesome you are. Because you're not that important. But all glory be to God. Isaiah 48, 11, God speaks to his people and he says, I will not let my reputation be tarnished. His reputation of what? Well, being the loving and, and merciful and holy and righteous God that he is, that's what. He won't let that reputation be tarnished. He says, I will not share my glory with idols. I won't share it with anybody and that's the best news for you and I, church, because guess what? When it's all about God and not you, all that pressure gets to fall off your shoulders. And when it's all for his glory, you get all the joy and benefits of it. That's the best news that there is. And then, as if we still had a hard time grasping it, if we're still like, yeah, but you just, you don't understand what I've done. There's no way God could forgive that. If we're still struggling, Hebrews chapter 6 says it this way. This will be up on the screen. I love this. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 16, says, Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because why? It is impossible for God to lie. So he says, I'm going to promise you that I'll do this, and because there's nobody greater than me, guess what? I'm going to swear by my own name that I will never change my mind about you. He can't even call on somebody greater than himself. And it says that it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because he's holy and righteous. That's why. That is, that is an anchor for you and I. There is nothing that could separate you from the love of God. 
he will never change his mind about you. Romans 11 would put it that way as well. God, God will never change his mind about those whom he has chosen. This is good news, church. There is nothing that you can do. God did it all for you. And there's nothing that could ever separate you and I from the love of God. And now, we have to be a little bit careful here because some of us in this room, I know you, and I know myself a little bit, the longer that you've been following Jesus, we, we have these messages where we talk about God's mercy and say there's nothing that you can do. God just loves you. He, he loves you even while you were sinning, right? The Bible tells us this. Jesus died even while we were sinning. And some of us, if we're not careful, we go, yeah, but, but what about obedience? But what about this? What about that? And I go, that's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about steps two and steps three and onward. What we're talking about today is the first thing that you have to do and is that you have to recognize that you do not have what it takes, that you could do nothing to receive this promise and the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. There's no prayer that you have to pray. There's no good deed that you have to do to earn it. There's nothing. But if some of us aren't careful, we jump a little bit too far ahead. And we, we, we try and speed up that process too quick before we actually experience that first step, which is sitting in it. Like sit your butt down and just experience the mercy of God before you try and jump to step two and step three. And so the last point there on your note sheet, if you struggle with this, this is more for you to consider and think about as you look at maybe some, some people that are broken around you. Don't mistake the gospel for what the gospel produces. Don't mistake the gospel. The good news about Jesus is that you can do nothing for what the gospel actually produces in your life. So I want to I talk to you about what I mean there for a second. Right? The good news, you can do nothing. And then what the gospel actually produces is a life that's been changed. Like we talked about the gentleman here yesterday morning. Woke up after being saved by Jesus and said, I don't even want to do those things anymore. Because you know what happens when you fully sit in that first step, which is experience who Jesus is, everything will change. Your life will inevitably change. You can't help it. Again, it's not a choice that you make. Some of it is, but not at the end of the day. It is the power of God through his mercy that actually changes you and starts to shape you and change you to look more like him. But be careful because you can't do the rest of it until you first start with the gospel. Jesus, I need you and there's nothing that I can do. And then everything changes. And then if there's still some doubt, <laughs> after God swears by his own name, says I will never change my mind about you, there's nothing that can separate you from my love. If you're still struggling, if you still have some doubt, I want to remind you of a little story that we find, find in Luke chapter 23. It'll be up on the screen. Luke chapter 23, before I start reading that, I want to kind of set the stage with what's going on. Jesus has been led to a hill where he's about to be crucified. But there's actually two other criminals there with him, one on his right and one on his left. They're about to be crucified with him. And so Luke 20, 23, starting in verse 39 Sorry, I totally lost my place there. Starting in verse 39. 
One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. Don't miss that. We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I cried last night when I read it. I didn't this morning. I usually cry almost every time that I read that passage. I don't, I don't believe that there's a better picture that Scripture gives us to solidify this promise that God makes with us. Like, this guy gets saved? I don't know if you know, but crucifixion was reserved for, like, really gnarly stuff that would happen. Capital punishment. I mean, it, it is... It is a terrible thing to be crucified. It was scarcely used for Roman citizens. It, it was that bad. They would scarcely use it if you were a Roman citizen. But this guy gets to be with Jesus? And like, what's he going to do, church? What's he going to do? Is he going to hop off the cross to go make things right? Is he going to go back and give back, give back all the money that he stole? Go make amends for all of his wrongs? No, he can't do any of that. He's here on the cross. Can't do anything. And is saved. Why? Why does he get to be saved? We don't know. We don't know why he was there in the first place. The story doesn't tell us why. But I believe that that's the whole point. I think that, that that's the point so that you and I wouldn't have any excuse as we read. So like he was crucified because he did this. That way you and I would have no excuse to be like, oh, well, I've done worse than that. So I guess it doesn't count for me. I believe that it's blank there for a reason. We have no excuse. We don't know what he did. But you know why he gets saved? It's his response. It's recognition. What did he say there in verse 41? He said, I deserve to die. But Jesus, would you just remember me? When you come into your kingdom? He recognizes that he missed it and he needs something. I don't deserve forgiveness for what I've done, but man, I need it. That's where the change is, church. I need it. Because until you first recognize that, you will miss it. I need it. I don't deserve it, but I need it. I don't deserve it, but I need it. And maybe that's where some of us in this room today need to move from simply believing that Jesus died on a cross. Because again, I'll tell you, most scholars wouldn't argue that Jesus lived and died and was a teacher and died on a cross. They wouldn't argue that. So maybe where you need to move from is simply believing that that happened to believing that it counts for you today and that you need it. That's where the shift happens. Do you recognize it? I would encourage you to just self-reflect on that a bit today. Do I recognize that I deserve the punishment, but that Jesus paid it for me and I need it? When you get that, everything changes. Everything changes. 
our worship team is going to make their way up here. And as people are moving around up on the stage, I encourage you to stick with me for a minute. I've got a couple more things that I want to tell you. There was another use for this word to telestai that I didn't mention earlier. And we don't have any documentation to indicate whether this was an actual practice, but even if it wasn't, it's a great illustration. And so it said that when a Roman prisoner was, was imprisoned, there would be this certificate of debt, this indictment, that would be posted outside of their jail cell that would indicate all of their crimes saying they are guilty. They are guilty. And after that sentence was completed and carried out and they were freed, the judge would actually take that indictment and would write to Telestai across it. It is finished. To indicate as legal binding proof for that person. They were giving that documentation so that when they left, if they were ever accused, if they were ever questioned by somebody to say, are you sure, you're that guy? To tell us die. It's finished. And what I want you guys to realize about that today, church, is that you, again, and I, have a great accuser who is out to get you the second that you walk out of this building. He might even be trying to get, on, get in your mind right now, in this moment. He's trying to accuse you and question you. And so when he does that, or if somebody questions you and accuses you, or if your past tries to remind you and says, are you sure that that counts for you? You can hold up that indictment that you have and say, no, it is finished. Binding and legal proof. There is no accusation against you. That when you receive what Jesus did for you on that cross, it's done. A single sacrifice, good for all time. Do you believe that that counts for you today, church? Do you believe that it counts for you tomorrow? The next time that you slip up, you believe that that sacrifice counts for you. I was reflecting again on first words and last words, right? And so Jesus' last word here, to tell us that it's finished. I was reminded of Jesus' first words that he spoke when he came on the scene early on in his ministry. The first time that he preached to a public crowd, the first words that came out of his mouth, he said, blessed are those who recognize their need for God. So the last words say, it's finished. But do you recognize that you need it? Do you recognize that you need God, that you can't do it alone? We're going to give you guys an opportunity this morning to do this yourself. Those three tables in the back and up here on the stage, we have some stamps and some of those note sheets. I want to encourage you to write your name down there inside of your note sheet. You'll see a spot there for that. Maybe for you, it's you need to write down something very specific. Maybe it's something you've been struggling and wrestling with for a long time. Maybe it's something that, that it's always in the back of, my, of your mind, like, could God really love me after that? I encourage you to write that down, that you would go and you would stamp that stamp that says it is paid for. That that would serve as a reminder for you when you wake up every day to say, that sacrifice still counts for me. And I have the proof right here. I invite you to the four tables around the corners to take communion where we take this piece of bread and this juice that represents what Jesus did on that cross. And in that moment, take the attention off of yourself and look at him. Say, Jesus, thank you that you did that for me. 
That's what that's there for. If you feel led to do that, please. And our prayer team is going to be in the back of the house at those chairs. If you're wrestling with some of this right now, if you have questions about this whole Jesus thing, if you're just not sure or if you are struggling, please go back and talk to them. Let them pray with you. They would love an opportunity to do that for you this morning. And so we're going to sing some songs now to Jesus and about Jesus for what, not what we did, but what he did on that cross for us. So Jesus, we love you and we praise you in this place. Take the attention off of ourselves right now. I pray that there would be no distractions in this room, that our attention and our praise and our song would just be lifted to you because of who you are and what you did for us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.